Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Today we're going to talk about the history of the exhibition and the carnival show in Canada and the carnival freaks who used to be such an important part of such shows with Jane Nicholas. Her book, Canadian Carnival Freaks and the Extraordinary Body, 1900 to 1970s, was recently published by the University of Toronto Press. Jane is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Waterloo. She is also the author of an earlier book entitled Feminine Modernities, The Body and Commodities in the 1920s, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2015. Jane, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you, Greg. First, let me ask you what spurred you on to write this book about the history of carnival freaks in Canada. Sure. So you mentioned my first book, which was on beauty and modernity. And as part of that project, I did some research on the history of beauty contests in Canada. And interestingly enough, beauty contests were often held, the early ones in the 1920s, at the same place as the freak show at exhibitions and fairs. And so in the same way that there's nothing natural about the freaks, there's actually nothing natural about what we consider beautiful. So what we consider beautiful or what we consider freakish is really a product of culture and not nature. And in many ways, the story of the freak show started off as that other side of the story, of telling the other side of the, the opposite of beauty. But then, as these projects often do, sort of once I was in the evidence, sort of driven by what I was finding in the archive, the project morphed into something else again. Well, in the preliminary part of your book, you talked about uh, the medieval fascination with and exposition of monsters. I found that actually very fascinating. So what's the connection between monsters, as understood centuries earlier, and freaks in the 19th and 20th centuries? Interest in the extraordinary body goes back centuries. And so there's nothing particularly new about that interest. But the freak and the freak show are really a product of the 19th century. So we talk about monsters, we can look to the origin of the word and the verb monster, um, or the word monster comes from verbs meaning to show or to warn. And in that earlier period, uh, children and adults were deemed to be monsters, were taken around door to door or shown in like one-off exhibits in the backs of taverns or something. And they were seen as something that was horrifically wondrous. And what we see in the 19th century is you have these changes in what constitutes amusement, change in what constitutes the purpose of amusement, as well as some really dramatic changes in the development of modern science, and that helps shift the monster to the freak. And when we look for the origins of the freak, we often turn to P.T. Barnum, who had these extraordinary skills at exploitation of a moment and at advertising, and he really shapes the modern freak show. He makes them more um, sort of sophisticated spectacles. He brings in structure, order, decorum. He adds in narrative histories and things like appeals to science and medicine. And so in these sophisticated visual displays, you can actually tap into the heart of these modern anxieties. And so they become something much wider than just gawking at a sort of singular body. But the interesting part is that monster never fully disappears. Monster remains in use in modern medicine. And in fact, I found a a letter from an American physician in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And he's writing in like 1964. And he says, you know, I think it's time that we stop referring to children. He uses the word deformities, children with deformities as monsters. 
And so even though we see a shift from monster to freak, monster remains. And so they don't neatly replace each other. Or freak doesn't neatly replace monster, but they sort of coexist. The Champlain Society was established in order to protect and disseminate original documentary history, and that's why we do these podcasts. And in fact, in an earlier discussion you and I had, uh, you uh, told me that there were two items in particular that most altered your own perspective in terms of how you went about writing this book. Can you describe each of these items to us, these primary sources, and their impact on you in the book that you finally produced? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So the first is a photograph that I found at Circus World Museum in Baraboo, Wisconsin. And Baraboo is the home of the Ringling Brothers, and they have this um, really beautiful center that includes a research library there. And they have an extraordinary collection of uh, American and Canadian carnival and circus history. And so while I was waiting for my boxes to be delivered, I um, pulled a photo album off the shelves and started flipping through the photo album. And there's lots of visual evidence of freak shows, and lots of it, regardless of what um, sort of archive you're in, is very similar. And so you see the same image over and over and over again. And so I was flipping through the photo album quickly, but I came to a photograph that caused me just to pause. And it's a photograph of a little girl and a little boy, and they're identified in the photograph as the elephant-skinned boys. And I don't have this photograph in the book, in part because I was really judicious in the selection of the images that went into the book, because I didn't want to curate my own sideshow. That wasn't my goal in the book. But this photograph was really important because I realized for the first time I was looking at children. And then I needed to be attentive to age and to the fact that children were exhibited as freaks and that many of the adults, the adult performers who became quite famous over the course of the 20th century, started being exhibited as infants and small children. And the photograph was also important because the children weren't performing in it. So sometimes when you look at the visual evidence, it's really easy to get sucked into the people in it as freaks again and not seeing the sort of performative narrative that's happening, the labor that's going in to produce the freak um, in the photograph. And so this photograph pierced that veil for me so I could see the children. And so it made me realize that I also needed to look at the freak show as a site of labor and as a site of performative labor. So that was the first piece that was really important. The second piece of evidence I found in the New York Public Library, and it's in the New York World's Fair collection. So in 1939 and 1940, New York holds the World's Fair, and the library has an unusually rich and complete set of records. It's a historian's dream. Um, And some of these records include dozens of letters written by parents, teachers, doctors, and other folks who write to the fair offering children for exhibition in the freak show. And so this is a really rare collection that offers a glimpse into the family dynamics that brought children to be exhibited. And one letter in particular really hit home for me. It was written by an American father, and he was writing near the end of the Depression. And he says, you know, he's very poor, he's on relief, and he's got two young children, uh, the youngest of which had just been born missing limbs. And I think it's clear from the photo, or from the letter, sorry, that the father really cared for this child and had concern for the child, but was desperate. He mentions trying not to bring the child home. He mentions being rejected by institutions. And so he turns to the freak show as a sort of last resort 
And so this letter really brought home to me that we're not just talking about so-called like callous operators or uncaring parents, but I had to look at a much wider context in which people were made to be desperate and uh, a context which made the freak show as an option for families. And so it made me much more attentive to to sort of wider social issues related to things like poverty and the social stigma attached to disability. In the first chapter, you introduced us to Pookie, the monkey girl. So who was Pookie, and what larger meaning can we draw from her story as a carnival freak? So in 1973, um, Pookie was exhibited at the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto, and she was exhibited as the monkey girl. And at the time, she was five years old, and reportedly her exhibit was her crying around, crawling around on stage in a diaper and crying. And after a full day of being exhibited, um, Toronto police received complaints about her display, and the Children's Aid Society became involved. And there was a really brief debate in Toronto newspapers over her exhibition. Some critical things sort of come out of Pookie's story. One is a day after her exhibition, which was supposed to last for the full duration of the fair, but only ended up lasting for a day. But the day after she was exhibited, the ex announced that it had banned freak shows. And this ostensibly brought to the end uh, a century or so of freak displays at the CNE. But historically and historiographically, Pookie's case is really interesting because, you know, she shows us that by the 1970s, Pookie is seen as a child who's deserving of care and protection. And this points to some major shifts that happen in regard to understandings of childhood and understandings of disability historically. Of course, Pookie was one of a long line of children who had been exhibited as freaks and exhibited in public, advertised in newspapers, and she's one of the few children to really receive attention um, and concern over that public exhibition. And what comes out in the debates is that Pookie's mother, like many parents before her, is exhibiting Pookie because the family is in poverty. And so it again speaks to the importance of looking at that economic component of the shows. But I think most importantly for me is Pookie stands as a real turning point in that she ostensibly, like I said, brings to the end live freak shows um, at the CNE. But that also then pushes the timeline historiographically for how the shows are understood. You know, out of the American context, we get a story that says, you know, freak shows are born in the Victorian period and they are dead. Like, oh, we have a hard stop in 1940. And Pookie's case shows us that they continue, you know, certainly in diminished form and in diminished numbers but they continue for decades longer. And in fact, when Pookie's displayed, Sam Alexander, who's the freak show operator at the CNE that year, says, you know, sure, you can shut it down in Toronto, but we can just go somewhere else. People still want to see them. People still want to see freaks. And so it doesn't officially end the show, but it's a turning point. But I think Pookie's story really, you know, highlights some of the critical issues around things like childhood, disability, poverty, and like I said, really pushes us to think about how much longer the freak show lasts as a live performance. Another story that really struck me, uh, you presented later in the book, uh, it's the case of Ernie and Len, the two living brothers with one head, as they were described. And they were part of the the Canadian National Exhibition sideshow uh, in the 1930s. So, just tell us a little bit more about Ernie and Len, um, and and what was going on here? Yeah, so um, 
age of four, it was born in Winnipeg in 1931. And he was born with what was referred to at the time as a parasitic twin. And so um, he had a partial lower body attached at his abdomen. And the twin was referred to as Len in their exhibition, so thus Ernie and Len. And as was the practice at the time, when word spread of DeFort's birth, Schoen pursued the parents with offers to join a freak show. Right. And from the time he was an infant, throughout his childhood, they were exhibited with the Conklin shows. And they were exhibited, you know, these fantastic Ballyhoo stories are what make the freak, right? And so they were exhibited as the world's strangest living boy, two living brothers with only one head, right? These sort of fantastical stories. Um, Ernie Lynn's interesting as well because the he stays with the show for over a decade and makes enough money to have what was referred to at the time as corrective surgery to have the twin removed, and that ended his time in the sideshow pits. But I think Ernie Lenz's case is really interesting for a number of points. Um, by the 1930s, you know, his exhibition, like others, are really modeled after sort of medical discourse. And so you have medical language and imagery structuring his display. You have nurses in starched white uniforms. And this sort of is an appeal to help legitimate some of the shows in the 30s and 40s, um, which helps with them continuing much longer than uh, initially thought. And it's also really interesting that Ernie Len is on exhibit in Toronto and across the country in the 1930s. So in the context of the 30s, of course, he's on exhibit at the same time as the Dion Quintuplets. But his mother is with him. He doesn't get taken away from his parents. His mother travels with him. And so while the Quints are removed from their parents because, allegedly, of a contract that the father signs with the showman, there were other children like Ernie Len at the time who weren't, whose families weren't intervened in, right? And so the Quints in some ways are extraordinary because of that government intervention, not necessarily because of their display. Now, what you've written is uh, clearly cultural history, um, but what I want to, uh, and what I became fascinated by, and you discuss it uh, in your book, is the business development of these major carnival and exhibition shows and the way these enterprises maximize profit from their freak shows. What was the linkage between the business model of these enterprises, and they were business enterprises, and uh, the freak show? So when I went to write the book, it quickly uh, became apparent to me that I couldn't tell the story and explain the long-term survival of the shows without looking at the carnivals as a business. And so not just looking at part of their operation, the freak show, but looking much more broadly and so I had all these questions of, like, how did they operate, right? Because carnivals had these incredible travel schedules, and I had maps made for the books so people could get a sense of the distance that they're traveling. So they're traveling huge distances. They're setting up and taking down shows in a matter of hours to take a train overnight to set it up again in another location. And this is in part because the shows only make money when they're exhibiting, right? They don't make any money in the travel afterwards. It also means that they're constantly changing jurisdictions, which makes it harder for authorities to trace them sometimes. But it also means that they're in touch with a lot of different authorities across the country who are doing things like collecting taxes and collecting licensing fees from the carnivals. And this, to me, became a major area to understand their success and their survival, right? They made money, not just for themselves, but also for municipalities, 
charitable organizations, and the provincial governments. And at times, the latter, the provincial governments, turned a blind eye to various regulations uh, because of this reciprocal relationship. And I think the business part is actually really important to understanding the cultural element of the show, because oftentimes, um, you know, people who were exhibited as freaks were seen as, um, or seen in very negative terms, as drains on their family or as drains on the state. And I think what the freak show as a business shows is that they contributed economically as well, right? It wasn't just a cultural phenomenon. And I think on the other side of the things, I think the business side of it itself is just fascinating. And I have a feeling that, you know, if Patty Conklin, who is this huge figure in the Canadian carnival history, if he had been in any other business, we would know much more about him, and he would garner much more attention from historians, in part because he has this incredible rags-to-riches story, right? He runs away from a foster family in New York. He ends up selling peanut shells on the streets of New York City before taking up with a carnival. He's the one who looks you know, northward to the Canadian West and says, there's lots of money to be made there, let's go. And between the 1920s and the 1970s, he builds an incredible business, and he becomes internationally regarded in the uh, sort of outdoor amusement uh, scene, and yet we know very little about him. And I think this is one of the things that at times makes it really complicated to be a cultural historian, but also really interesting, is that culture intersects with society, politics, economics. And sometimes when we parse that too finely as historians, I think we miss some of those critical connections. Well, did the, the freak show contribute considerably from a financial standpoint to the carnival or the exhibition itself? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. From the 1890s onward, you know, the Midway is seen as an essential part. The freak show is an essential part of the survival of the carnival and for bringing in money for exhibitions and fairs, right? And exhibition operators know this, that if you have a successful midway, if you have a successful freak show, you're going to be able to, you know, be in the black by the end. And this is also why, you know, children like um, Ernie Len were so uh, lucrative because they were so-called born freaks, right? And they were rare. And so a child like that could draw in any number of customers and they're dealing in, you know, nickels and dimes, but they're drawing in thousands of people over 12-hour-a-day shows. So it's, it's, they can make an extraordinary amount of money. And, of course, all of that money is taxed. Portions of it get collected based on contracts they have with the exhibition operators. And so it's a really, it can be a very lucrative business. They could also lose a lot of money, but the contracts were very clear that those losses came at the loss of the carnival, not because of the exhibition. And then there seems to be a, a development, in the, particularly in the 20th century, where you have uh, little uh, small people and babies and that sort of thing added to the so-called traditional freak show. And these uh, uh, so-called midget shows uh, and baby contests almost become like a main attraction. What's going on mm -hmm. here? What happens? It's a really interesting story. So little people, or people of small stature, had long been freak show attractions. You know, Tom Thumb was one of Barnum's original uh, exhibits. And interestingly enough, began his relationship with Barnum as a child as well. Um, but the so-called midget shows, to use the historical language at the time, were one of the mainstays um, of the freak show. And they outlast 
some of the major ups and downs of the freak show. And by the 1940s, they're part of what I call in the book the spectacularization of cute. And so little people and children were exhibited as cute, as adorable, and as glamorous in miniature as part of the remaking of the freak show in the 1930s and 1940s to keep the freak show sort of child-friendly and family-friendly. And I think this is a really important part of understanding the freak show because it shows how easily the shows could morph taking up contemporary cultural issues and speaking to contemporary audiences just by shifting the nature of the display, right? And I think, you know, it gets into that also that tricky question of how do these things morph and continue to morph, which is the hard part in trying to figure out when the shows end, right? Because while live performances now are certainly diminished, although you can still see them, um, we have the rise of television, right. right? Which has taken up some of these displays. Which shows like Little People, and, Big World, Little Women, etc. on these reality television shows. Yeah, exactly. And there are resonances there to what's happening earlier. And I think one of the interesting parts, for me anyways, is how um, the medium changes um, the dynamics of looking, right? If you are at a live exhibition, right? Yes, you're staring at someone and there's a power imbalance there. But the person on exhibit knew you were there. They could speak to you and they did. That was part of the shows. They could see you. They could interact with you. And in some ways, they could sort of hold you accountable for, for staring. But on TV, of course, we can all hide in our homes and surreptitiously watch these shows without anyone knowing, right? Right. Now, one of the things that I didn't expect was a discussion and a very sort of lengthy section on the Dion quintuplets and the connection between what happened to them and the uh, freak sideshow at major exhibitions. Can you explain that? One of the canvas fronts for the Ernie Lunn exhibit said, rarer than the Dion quintuplets. Um, and of course, the Dion quintuplets are taken away from their parents under a special guardianship act that makes them wards of the crown, allegedly because their father had signed a contract with a showman. Um, and the contract that was brokered, you know, the, his priest is part of that con- brokering of that contract. Other people were involved, including Dr. Uh, Defoe. Um, but uh, the Dion quintuplets are interesting because it's not unusual for showmen at the time to pursue um, the birth of an extraordinary child, but it was extraordinary because the Ontario government stepped in with the Dion Quintuplets. And of course, after the removal from their parents, they're put on display in a custom-built hospital in what to me essentially amounts to as a non-traveling freak show. And in fact, the freak show continues to haunt the display. It's mentioned in papers at the time. Dr. Defoe is at one point described as a showman. Um, and so the specter of the freak show haunts the girls' display the whole time. And of course, the girls, again, make huge amounts of money for various companies and for the province. Um, and the province and the guardians form contracts with uh, you know, corn syrup companies and Quaker Oats and all these other ones. Um, but one of the sad things about the girls' exhibit is that, as with many children who are exhibited as freaks, they were profitable for other people, but never right. fully saw the benefits themselves. That's right. Now, uh, do you have plans for another book on a same or similar topic? Um, not 
connected to the freak show. Um, my next project is actually on child death and grief in Ontario. Wow, that's a, that's a bit of a shift. Yeah, well, you know what's funny is um, it comes out of some of the emotional elements that I was trying to reckon with with the freak show. Um, the letter I mentioned earlier about the father who was writing, you know, his sense of grief is palpable in that letter, and it's grief over a living child. Um, but I think before that story can be told, I think we have to tell the story of child death and grief more broadly. And so I've sort of stepped uh, backwards a little bit. I've also stepped backwards in time. But I will say that, there, you know, there's so many resources out there on the history of the freak show, and there's so many more stories to be told that I hope um, I hope other people tell those stories because there's much more. Well, and we look forward to interviewing you on your next books and uh, want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Well, it's been our pleasure entirely. My guest today was Jane Nicholas. We talked about her new book, Canadian Carnival Freaks and the Extraordinary Body, 1900 to 1970s, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2018. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, This podcast is made possible by the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. This interview was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute, Ryerson University, and was produced by Heather Goh and Hugh Backhurst. We look forward to you joining us again.